Good afternoon. Good to have you all with us. Um, I'm Mark Steiner, and uh, instead of introducing this time, I will be doing an interview that we're taping for the radio. Um, we're here with Jamal Joseph. The book is Panther Baby, A Life of Rebellion and Reinvention. Um, I read this book over the last few days, uh, and I was blown away by it, and so I was knew about the book, which is why I said yes in the beginning. But uh, welcome to Baltimore, Jamal. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Good to have you here. So I don't know if these things, these things we, we, if we have time, we might even, I might jump out and let you get some questions in here. And as long as you speak into the mic so we can use it for the radio. Can right? you turn the sound up? Uh, is there sound we can turn up? Sound in the room? Hello, hello. Oh, there we go. Is, is that, that better? better? Ah, yes. Okay. Now I, I thought they were challenging us to prove that that's we both I, have theater backgrounds. That's what I thought. We were right. <laughs> Project. <laughs> Project. Project. All right, good. That, now that works better. Yes. So let's just take a step backwards. I think that for people who – how many of you read this book or know this book at all? A few. Okay. Once you hear this, you will read it, I think. Um, Jamal Joseph was 15 years old when he joined the Panthers in New York. Let's just take a step backwards um, and talk a bit about that particular period, that what drove you from this time of um, – Living with your uh, with the Baltimores, the Baltimores. The Baltimore's. That? That's right. My, uh, that, those were my adopted grandparents, Charles and Jesse May Baltimore, um, and he probably got that name because uh, he was the son of slaves. And at that time, people got names. Sometimes right. it was the master's name that might have been the last place his family was, but that was Pop Baltimore. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It could have been the sentence of slaves of Lord Baltimore. Right, exactly. Know, right? That's right. But, so you, you grew up, you, your life started, you, you were born in Cuba. No, I was conceived, conceived in Cuba. Conceived in Cuba, uh, born here. Conceived in Cuba and then born in New York when, uh, when my mother, who was a graduate student at the University of Havana, uh, came home after the semester was, uh, was over, after the school was over, and explained to my grandmother, A, that she was pregnant, and that when they asked who the father was, that he was a consort of the Communist Party and hanging out with people <laughs> like Fidel and Raul Castro. I doubt if mom got to finish that sentence before they had her on the first thing smoking to New York. They wanted to get her as far away from that as he could, and so I was, I was actually born in New York City and raised in New York City. And then tell us about how you, you weren't raised by your mom. You were raised by... I was raised by adopted grandparents. So uh, mom uh, had been uh, in graduate school, pre-med student at, uh, in Cuba, uh, grew up speaking Spanish but also spoke French. Uh, but when she got to New York in 1952, she was a brown-skinned woman who couldn't speak English. So none of her training and education meant anything. She stayed with an aunt who she just didn't get along with. And so as soon as I was born, she said, I have to find some foster care and I have to start my education and my life over. So I was 17 days old, and I was put in the care of the Baltimores, who became my adopted grandparents. And they, even though some maybe you might argue, as you did in the book, that maybe you were genetically prone to become a revolutionary. <laughs> that, exactly. That also was the Baltimores, and it was their influence. They were Garveyites. Yeah. Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, their older siblings and their parents had been slaves. So they grew up in a South that was highly segregated and highly dangerous to be a person of color in. I mean, it's the South where 
when you walked down the street, you didn't look, if you were black, you didn't look a white person in the eye. Uh, and if there was a narrow sidewalk, you cleared the sidewalk, or probably you just cleared the sidewalk. So that meant if you were an 80-year-old black great-grandmother and it was raining and a 15-year-old white boy was walking down the street, it just meant that grandma's shoes were getting muddy that day. That's right. the kind of sound. Um, but they were activists. They had been Garveyites. They had been um, active in local political organizations. Even though they weren't highly educated in terms of formal education, they were very well-read and very knowledgeable. So I grew up kind of in that atmosphere. In fact, a story that I, that I like to tell is, uh, uh, is, is sitting with Grandpa Baltimore watching television. And this is where I first learned to become critical of media. All right, and so his critique was uh, like this. Uh, so you have to picture Grandma's old black and white TV and a Tarzan movie on. You all know the old Tarzan Johnny Weissmuller movies, and uh, Grandpa's sitting there, and he's uh, you know he's in he's in his eighties, and he's kind of half watching the TV. I'm doing homework. Johnny Weissmuller swings across the screen <laughs> and does the Tarzan yell, and you know the the the, the elephants obey and the lions obey and the tigers obey and the Africans are kind of sitting off in the corner, you know, huddled by a tree looking scared and ignorant. And he watches it for about five minutes and he goes, now what the F is that? <laughs> he said, boy, tell me what the F is that? Little cracker baby fall out the damn plane. He speak lion monkey, every damn thing. Africans look like they're crazy. Change the damn channel. <laughs> so that's, that was my critique on cinema and race and, race and, you know, race and class and cinema. I then flipped the, flipped the TV because in those days, those of you that remember, you were the remote control, right? Grandpa said, change the channel. You got up and you flipped the dials. So I flipped the dials, and here comes a, a young reporter named Harry Reasoner. It's a great story. This is before Harry Reasoner's great fame, but this is my first encounter with this form of, of journalism known as the editorial. Harry Reasoner is sitting behind a desk. He's doing an editorial. It was about the race for space. At that time, it was who was going to get there first. I think the Russians had put up a satellite before anybody else, which was a horrifying thing in terms of you know, global politics and the race for power. And uh, he lets Mr. Reisner go on for about three minutes. I think he made it about uh, 30 seconds longer than um, Tarzan did. And he talks to the TV, interactive. If anybody's ever been to Magic Johnson Theater, you know, black people's experience with media is interactive. <laughs> and he then speaks to Mr. Reason. He goes, you was a lion, MF, onion head, frying pass face, MF and cracker. Boy, change the channel. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned to question editorial. But that, that was what, but I also learned from him to be proud. I also learned, he's the first person that I heard say that we were African. Uh, this is at a time in the black community where there was a great debate if we were Negro or colored. Right. And this was a time in the black community, this just before the black power movement, civil rights movement was going, but people would play the dozens. In other words, you would tease people, your classmates in school, by saying how black you were, right? Oh, yeah, your, your, right. your, your mama's so black, um, she went to night school and got marked absent, you know. <laughs> and then you come back, oh, yeah, your daddy's so black, he sweat chocolate syrup, you know, so this was a thing. In the 20s, there was a, um, a song that was a big hit, uh, uh, and it became like an anthem for what, what it meant to be a person of color in America. If, you, if you're white, you're just right. Uh, if you're brown, brown stick, stick around. around. If you're black, black you get, get back. back. So overcoming that, overcoming the, 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 uh, the, um, the embarrassment of color, 
uh, and overcoming the fear of being out of place, of speaking up too much, of doing too many things, was very much kind of part of the psyche that I grew up with. So having people like the Baltimores that would talk about the Ku Klux Klan, that would talk about the murder of Emmett Till, show me those photos and say what a horrible thing this is and this is what you're going to have to fight against. And someone who could cuss out the TV but in a way that was conscious about race and class was a tremendous thing. I didn't realize it so much then, but as I got older, even, even as a man-child in the Panthers, I realized what a tremendous experience it was growing up with the Baltimore's. So the Panthers, you're here, you're 15 years old, and because these two older guys who you knew from this order of the feather, which you can describe in brief, <coughs> you, went, you, you went to the Panthers. You wanted to be a Panther really badly. And but I, before we... Let's set the tone, the tone of that time, because a lot of people here who probably have heard the word Panthers, no idea what that moment was like in history. Some people were not alive then, or maybe were just being born. And so set the tone. Set what was happening to you, to the black community, why you were driven to the Panthers, what was going on that, that they became the central well, force well, What for the black community was very conscious of is that, <clears throat> is that uh, people were fighting for change. Excuse me. <clears throat> and the symbol of that change was Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. So we understood about Rosa Parks. Um, we understood about the civil rights protesting and the Freedom Riders. The black community was watching that very, very carefully. And if you lived in the North, you watched it. And if you had an opportunity to participate like I did, it was usually through the church. And through the local church, Trinity Baptist Church, I joined the NAACP Youth Council. So students who were freedom writers would come and talk about the experiences. We collected money. We collected books. We collected food to send down. And then in 1968, uh, uh, April 4th, 1968, uh, Dr. King uh, was assassinated. And this just created a consciousness shift in the whole community. And for me... I remember sneaking down to Harlem and weaving in and out of the riots. In fact, almost you know, being arrested and almost being shot as I ran away from the cops and being protected by some men I later came to know who were Panthers. They were just these militant men that stood up to the cops and protected me. And, I, and, and you would hear on the news and you would hear people talk about this other force in social change, these men and women that were known as black militants. There was a coolness to them, too, because they, they, they wore afros and they had on sunglasses and they would wear army fatigue jackets. And they would call, you know, they would call Whitey the man or the beast. They would just, you know, stood up in a real uh, kind of cool and strong and, and, and almost arrogant way. And I remember coming to school the, the day after the riots, uh, deciding and announcing to all of my friends that I ate lunch with. There was a group of friends that... Uh, uh, that we had shared the same table. We were hallway monitors, so we would eat and then go out into the hallway early. And I announced to my friends the day after Dr. King was killed that I, Eddie Joseph, I didn't have the name Jamal then, was going to be a black militant. And one of my friends, one of my best friends, was a white kid, a Jewish kid named Paul. And Paul looked and he said, Eddie, I don't know if you can announce you're going to be a black militant like it's a career choice. <laughs> Like, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I was like, no, Paul, you watch. You watch. I'm going to be a militant. And so I then had to prove to, my, to, to, uh, to Paul as much as to myself that I was going to be a militant. And there on the news was a story about the Panthers. 
And the Panthers had organized uh, two years earlier in Oakland, California, and they began patrolling the streets with shotguns and law books. And the, it was legal to carry uh, guns in California if you didn't have a criminal record and if they weren't concealed, any citizen could carry a, uh, a rifle or a shotgun. And the law books were to let the police know and to let people know that they had a constitutional right to be treated a certain way, to be treated with a certain due process when they were arrested. Uh, in Oakland, in Harlem, in Chicago, in most black communities, it was standard procedure that if the cops stopped you or arrested you, that you were going to get beat up. I mean, it was just standard. I, as a little kid, I grew up with that reality. I remember sneaking uh, over the fence to a park that was closed and playing basketball with my friends when I was around 10 or 11 years old. A couple of white cops came in. What are you doing in the park? We're just playing basketball. What are your names? We gave our names. Get the hell out of here. And to make their point, the cops took their nightsticks out and they whipped us across our back and our legs. We are running. We look over my friend Roger as we get around the corner and catch our breath, and he's crying. And guess what our reaction was? We teased him. We laughed at him. Oh, you a punk. You can't take it. We didn't realize we had been so socialized that this was a way of life in the black community that we thought crying because a cop beat us, by the way, an adult assaulted us, a person whose job it was to protect us had broken the law. It, it, it never processed on that level. It processed on the level that you a punk. You cry because that cop hit you. No, I'm not. And that's how we process it. The Panthers helped us process that much differently. That not only was this against the law, that we were going to use the law to defend ourselves because you had a constitutional right for self-defense. So cops would pull someone over, throw someone against the wall. Panthers would be there. They'd stand the legal distance away, and they would read from the law books. They would read the person their rights, and they would also let the cops know that they had a constitutional right to observe, to defend themselves, to be on the scene, would follow that person to the precinct. They would bail them out if they had the money. And if not, there were a number of young lawyers on standby, black, white uh, lawyers, uh, law students who would be there to represent folks. Well, anyway, the Panthers stormed the state capitol in Sacramento because the legislature decided when we said citizens could carry guns, we didn't mean black militants talking about revolution. And the Panthers responded by storming the state capitol of Sacramento. And I remember watching TV thinking, they're crazy. They have guns. They got leather coats. They're crazy. And then Bobby Seale gave that great statement, you know, talking about self-defense and revolution. He's talking about revolution. He's crazy. And then a news reporter said that they had stopped a Panther vehicle and he found more guns and communist literature in the trunk. I was like, they, they're crazy. They got leather coats. They got guns. They're talking about revolution. They got communist literature in the trunk. I want to join them, <laughs> you know, because when you're 15, because that was the most militant scene. So uh, we rode out to Brooklyn. There wasn't a Panther office in the Bronx or Harlem. And as we're riding out, uh, my friends who were older than me were telling me, uh, as far as they knew, we didn't really know, as far as they knew what it would take to be a Panther. One friend leads over, he says, uh, yo, Eddie, you know, um, you know the Panthers is like a mafia. You know, once you join, there's no getting out. And I'm 15 years old. I'm with two older guys. I can't be a punk. I'm scared, like the mafia. But I say, I don't care. You know, I can't be a punk. One guy leans over, he says, uh, yo, man, you know, um, you know you're going to have to kill a white dude to be a panther. <laughs> I'm like, kill somebody. <laughs> but I can't be a punk in front of my boys. I go, I don't care. 
Other guy leans over, he says, no, man, get it right, get it right. You ain't got to kill a white dude. Oh, my God, I'm so relieved. He was like, no, man, get it right. You got to kill a white cop. <laughs> and you got to bring in his badge and his gun. So I am trembling when I walk into the Panther office. There's that Black Panther Party sign. We go in, I sit in the back, and the person is sitting uh, at the front of the office, and he's explaining the Panther 10-point program. And uh, if you look it up online, uh, it's still dynamic and sadly still could have been written not 46 years ago, but last week. Uh, We want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our community, full employment for our people, decent housing, fit for shelter, human beings. Nothing in there about killing anybody, let alone a white cop. But I'm not kind of hearing this. I'm still, you know, you know, having the inner, the inner uh, monologue. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm showing my friends I'm not a punk. I'm a man. He gets to point number five, which is about education. When education that teaches us our true history and the true nature of this decadent American society. And I jump up in the back of the meeting. I was like, choose me, brother. Arm me. I kill a white dude right now. <laughs> the whole meeting stops. The man in charge says, come here, young brother. And I walk around to the desk, and I'm standing there, and he reaches down into the bottom drawer, and he's fishing around for something. And my heart is pounding in my little skinny chest. I was looking how far out he's reaching. He's going to give me a big damn gun. And he hands me a stack of books. Autobiography of Malcolm X, Wretched of the Earth by Fanon, Soul on Ice by Odris Cleaver, uh, those of us from the 60s remember the famous little red book, quotations for chairman. Now I'm thinking this must be a test because my friends told me I have to do this and I have to do that. And so I said, excuse me, brother. I thought you were going to arm me. And he said, excuse me, young brother. I just did. So, and that, and that, this is an important juncture here because I think that there are a lot of people who look at the Panthers and look at that period um, the Panthers as they, they hear about free breakfast programs and they hear about killing pigs right. and calling police pigs. You know, and you see a cop, don't oink at me. All that that went on. Mm-hmm. And those two poles on some levels were real. But the breakfast program was real. That happened every day. That happened every day. Every day. Feeding kids in the, in the community. But people don't realize what I like you to describe I would like you to describe what you learned and how it opened your eyes about what it meant to be a revolutionary in 1968 in the black world. And it was also not necessarily a black nationalist world. It was a very complex place. Well, the second thing that happened, I mean, the, the thing that happened immediately following me getting the books was as I was walking back to my seat, uh, the, the young lieutenant in charge said, let me ask you a question since you came in here mad talking about you want to kill white folks. He said, if all of the cops in the community, these racist pig police that are out here that are beating people up, brutalizing them, shooting them down, locking them up, if they were black and the people being brutalized were white, if all of these stores that are owned in the community um, that are ripping people off with high prices, spoiled vegetables, rotten meat, if all of the owners were black and the people being ripped off were white, and he said, and all these jive-time, demagogic, fascist, pig politicians. He said, everybody in power was black, and the people being exploited and oppressed were white. Would that make things correct? And then I answered with my brain instead of now my well-bruised ego. And I said, no, sir, it seems like it would still be, be wrong. And for the first time he smiled, he said, that's right. This is a class struggle. 
for human rights, not just a race struggle for civil rights. Study the book so you know what the revolution is about. And then, on, and then, just a little while later, I was looking at the posters that were in the Panther office, and I was struck by the poster of Che Guevara. And it had a picture of Che giving a speech, and it was a quote from a speech that he had given a few years earlier at the United Nations. And the quote uh, was, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, let me say that revolutionaries are guided by great feelings of love. Um, and so that became clear the very first day. And then the very that weekend I went to the, to the first Panther rally and Panthers would come out and they would say all power to the people and people would say power to the people and they would say that means black power for black people and we're like pumping up fists and we go yeah we get that he says that means white power for white people and it means brown power for brown people and red power for red people and yellow power for yellow people and we would go well what is that about and they would break down what was happening in terms of class and oppression what was happening with capitalism oppression, why it was important for the black liberation movement to be linked up with the labor movement and with the women's movement. And this is some heavy ideas and some bold ideas, but some, also some very liberating ideas to get when you're 15 years old, to put the history of everything that was going on in the context not just of race, but in terms of race and economics. So you began to understand that slavery was a business. You know, we grew up just thinking white people didn't like us. And then in the Panther PE class, you begin to understand that it was a business. In fact, the first slave Political education class. Political education Ed, class. Not his ad, right? Yeah. Political education, yeah. PE class, as we called it. That slavery was a business. Indention service, and then Native American people, and then African people. And that racism is the ideology of oppression. It's how one, uh, uh, the people who are the marketers, the architects of the slave trade, marketed slavery to people that might have thought slavery was wrong. So you come on the auction block and you have these slaves you need to sell and you, you have some people in the audience who are doubters who might be white. That's your, uh, that's, your, that's your audience. That's your target marketplace. So how do you deal with that? You said, good people, let me, let me tell you what you're nervous about. You're nervous because the Bible, the good book, says that it's wrong for one man to enslave another man. And I'm here to tell you that I read the good book as well. And guess what? These African slaves you see behind me are not human. So you're not breaking any, any, any law, not man's law, not God's law. In fact, owning a slave is like owning a horse or a donkey or a chicken. It will help you prosper. And that's what the good book wants us to do. It wants us to work hard and prosper. So the byproducts of that, of an economic system that says that it's okay to keep people in chains for profit, is the attitudes of race that we have. And by the way, that continue to exist now when we look at class division, when we look at poor folk... Uh, who might be black, looking at poor folk who are Mexican, looking at poor folk who are white, and all hating each other because they're saying, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have a job. If it wasn't for them working cheap, I wouldn't have this. Instead of asking the bigger questions, how come the stock market is posting record profits and people are, uh, are, are living at, at, rec at levels of record suffering? So when, when you became 15 and became a panther, you became a revolutionary. And in a little bit, we'll get into what that means for today because you've never given up, given up being a revolutionary, but you, we'll talk a little bit about what, that, what, what the switch was. Sure. But here you were in the Panthers. And that's another picture I want to paint. You had, the, you had th these lessons. You met a lot of very powerful people, of Fanny Shakur, the mother of Tupac Shakur and, and, and others in that movement, Lumumba Shakur. Tupac, who was your student, was we, have to give, we have to give props to that because <laughs> a life-changing experience for Tupac in terms of who he became as an artist 
happened when he got to the city of Baltimore and happened when he was in your class and you were teaching him acting in Shakespeare. Tupac would always say in the midst of his uh, stardom, right, and his, you know, his uh, uh, thug life and all that movement, when he would talk about acting, something else would come over him. And when he says, if you haven't really trained as an actor, if you haven't done the scene work, if you haven't done Shakespeare, you're not an actor. Now what? You know, so that was Pac. Tupac was a good actor. So we want to give him a round of applause for his role in Tupac's life. Yeah, please, please. We can do that. (laughs) So so you met all these people. And one of the people you met was uh, uh, Idwa? Uh, Yewa. 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 Mm -hmm. Yewa, who was this militant crazy Negroes, they would say back in the day, mm-hmm. Vietnam vet who taught you guns, taught everybody how to use the guns, had you blindfolded so you could take them apart, put them back together again, because guns were very much part of Panther culture in terms of self-defense. Not in terms of being aggressive, going out and killing people, but in terms of self-defense. But th- this, this guy became very influential in your life. He for did. A period. He did, and also understand I had no, that, that uh, Pop Baltimore had, I never knew my father. Never met him. Paul Baltimore um, was my father, was my grandfather, and he had died three years earlier. So I'm this 15-year-old kid who was in search of manhood as much, probably even more so, than the movement. It just so happened that my search for manhood took me to the movement. Uh, we have a lot of kids who search for manhood may take them to a street corner or to a gang. It took me to the Panther Party. And here was this handsome, charismatic crazy guy, but crazy in the black community is like a compliment. When you go like, oh man, that dude is crazy. That means that he will lay it down. He will fight for you, for himself, for everyone else. And became my mentor. He was my section leader, which was like my lieutenant. Kept an eye on me. Made sure that I learned the uh, self-defense and all of that stuff, but that I showed up at the breakfast program on time. Flipped pancakes, did all of that stuff. Even the right way to rap to a panther girl. You know? Panther girl came to me once I began to feel my swag a little bit. I saw a, a, a young woman in the Panthers that was a little bit older than me, and I was like, what's happening, baby? And she spun and looked at me, and she said, the revolution is happening, my brother. My name is not Baby. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> he was like, Jamal, you can't talk to a Panther woman like that. You've got to say power to the people, my sister. And when she says, how you doing, my brother, you have to say, well, my sister, you know, I'm really exhausted. I was up at 5 o'clock this morning at the breakfast program. Then I was at my school organizing. Then I went to PE class. Then I went out and I did community patrol. I can barely keep my eyes open, but I'm here, my sister. That's what a Panther woman <laughs> wants to hear. Now, my Baltimore, you mentioned um, the, uh, uh, the, the, some of the Panther art, Emery Douglas's you know, art, which showed the police right. as pigs and had uh, liberation posters that would show African school children with books on one shoulder and an AK-47 on another shoulder. Well, Ma goes to clean up my room after telling me for weeks, clean up your room, and I'm too busy now because school, karate, the Panthers, I'm on the go. And she finds hidden under my bed all of this Black Panther material. So I come home late one night from a Panther meeting. I told her it was after school center. And there stacked up is all the Panther literature and Holy Bible and a belt. That was the mafia altar. She said, boy, what is this? And I said, Grandma, you was in my room? She said, stop it. Don't even, she says, because I read through some of this stuff, and boy, I don't know if you lost your mind, and I don't know if I should bless you with this belt or kill you with this Bible. <laughs> but you are not going back. And I begged and pleaded. And when I went by the Panther office to say why I couldn't come back anymore, I said, my grandmother's an Uncle Tom, and she's tripping. And Afeni, Tupac's mom, almost took my head off. 
She said, never speak about your grandmother this way. She said, because she's the reason why you're here. And I mean literally because we stand on the shoulders of people like your grandmother, number one. And number two, you weren't open and honest with her, and she's just protecting you the best way she knows how. Yewa said, let me go talk to her. And Yewa comes to the house and beautifully convinces my grandmother, like, if you don't let him go back, that's one thing, but let me keep an eye on him. I'll make sure that he gets to school on time, that he does his homework, that he obeys you. I'll keep an eye on him. And she really detected a sense of concern from this strong man before her. And so she let me go back. Well, four weeks later, the cops kick in the door. And I'm arrested as part of the Panther 21 case, the same case of Faney uh, was arrested on. And it was the entire leadership of New York. And even though I had just turned 16, I was head of the youth cadres in the high schools. And we were charged with conspiracy to possess weapons. They said that we were going to bomb the botanical gardens. You know, the Panthers really hated flowers. They said we were going to bomb the botanical gardens. And we were facing a sentence that was 300-plus years. And at first we thought the charges were a joke. And then we found out that there were two undercover cops, part of an elite police unit, that had infiltrated the Panthers and that had uh, created, fabricated all of this evidence. One was a guy named Gene Roberts, who had been Malcolm X's bodyguard, who literally was on stage when Malcolm X was shot a few feet away. In fact, you can go Google the photo, and you'll see an image of Gene Roberts giving Malcolm X mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Malcolm drew his last breath from an undercover cop. No one knew it. He was a loyal follower of Malcolm. He was one of them. He then left and joined the Panthers. And the other one was Yewa, my mentor, the guy who taught me hand-to-hand combat, who taught me how to make pancakes, who came to my grandmother's house and convinced her to let me stay, was an undercover cop. And you see, and that, was, that was the time as well. I mean, here you were, you were in jail. You spent 13 months in jail waiting for trial and got out because you were, because you were young. Um, but this was something that was very common. I mean, the infiltration of the Black Panther Party, uh, of that kind of, this kind of agent provocateurs going in and kind of exploding it out and having people arrested and the Panther 21 and what they went through. Innocent of the charges they were, they were um, accused of, but either had to languish in prison, wait this trial, and destroy the organization from the inside out. That's what was happening at the moment. And it was known as the counterintelligence program. as a well-coordinated effort that was led by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI uh, called COINTELPRO uh, that stood for the counterintelligence program. And it was meant to, uh, to operate exactly the way that you described it, to destroy an organization from the inside and from the outside, to have people <clears throat> infiltrate the organization, create rifts and, and, um, uh, uh, and bad blood within the organization, um, plant false evidence, or push members to do things that they wouldn't normally do, and then criminalize the movement. Now, why you want to do that is because in the public side, you want to not only destroy the movement, but criminalize the movement. This led to the death of so many people, and, and I like to say also to the death of police officers because the FBI did the same thing to local police departments where they would go to a local police department and say, the Panthers are planning to attack you. You need to do a preemptive strike. Whereas they may not have been that level, quite that level of hostility between a local police department and that local chapter of the Black Panther Party, the FBI would make sure that there was and there would be these raids that happened across the, across the country where in Philadelphia, for example, 
Panther office was raided. Panthers were stripped naked and made to stand out in the cold, handcuffed and chained uh, for about 10 hours. In Los Angeles, there was a shootout between Panthers and the local police. In Ohio, the Panther office was bombed. And in Chicago, Fred Hampton was murdered in his sleep, unarmed, uh, murdered in his sleep uh, when they raided the apartment. Now, what happened in Fred Hampton's case um, is an example, and I want to bring it back to the Panther 21 in just a second, is, I think, indicative of how people of conscience, progressive people of all colors, began to question what the government was doing to the Panther Party. A young reporter, the Panthers left the apartment open, and they said, come see what happened. And it was similar to what had happened in Chicago a dozen years earlier with Emmett Till, where Emmett Till, who had gone to Mississippi and had been brutally murdered, his crime was flirting with a white woman. I think he whistled at a woman behind the counter. Later, her husband and some other men came and took young, young men out of bed, killed him, and left his body in the river. Well, he was mutilated beyond recognition. His mother bravely said, leave the casket open. I want the world to see what happened to my son so that it doesn't happen to anyone else. And 50,000 Chicagoans, black and white, came to see. And it became lead stories in all of the black press, much of the white press, and people became outraged that this thing could happen in 19, I think it was 55 or right. 56. The Panthers left that apartment open in Chicago. And people came through to see the bloody sheets, to see the bullet holes, and a young white reporter looked at the bullet holes and said, if this was such a fierce shootout, how come all the bullets are traveling from outside to inside? And again, you don't have to be a forensic scientist to know that a bullet goes in small and comes out big. And people investigated it. It became, the citizens of Chicago became outraged. Years later, there was a lawsuit that was settled where millions of dollars were paid to the survivors. But more importantly, then people began to say, it doesn't matter what the Panthers' politics are. We may not agree with that. They're a Marxist organization. They're talking about revolution. But they do not deserve to be murdered in their sleep. And then people came to the Panther 21 and says, we may not agree with the politics of the New York Black Panther Party, but they don't deserve to be in jail with bail that is $100,000 when they're students, artists, community organizers. And I was surprised going to court one day as a young Panthers to see that the NAACP had sent their lawyers from the Legal Defense Fund to argue the question of bail and to argue the question of us getting a jury by our peer group. And that's why I think the lesson in the 60s that the Panthers helped people of conscience come together, maybe not around all of the issues that the Panthers talked about, but around the issues of the breakfast program, which was poverty, yes? Health care, which was the free health clinics that the Panthers started. The issue of bail and fair trials. Law students would come out just around those issues to make us understand that democracy works when citizens always question and have a militant voice about what's going on in government. So what I want to do here is we only have like 15 minutes left before the next, the next author comes through the door. So I, I really want you to, to jump into, because I want people to get a sense of this, what else is in the book. What happened to you? Uh, very, I mean, the, the Panthers were decimated and destroyed by, this, by, by these raids and these trials. Panther 21, even though they were let off, it caused a split inside the Panthers. Organization was falling apart. You had to go underground yourself as a Panther 21, and you can tell the story I mean, from there picking up how you took on drug dealers and tried in, in the community, and you ended up in prison for a long time. Yes. You got a 12-year sentence. Yes. So to give a piece of that story. I want people to hear that part of what happened to you and what happened to the Panthers inside 
um, to answer that part of your, your well I when I when I got to Leavenworth to do what was going to be the long sentence um, the first day there I met an older prisoner who gave me an amazing piece of advice it was life-changing advice and it was simple um, as as most good pieces of advice are he said young blood you can serve this here time or you can let this here time serve you and like a light bulb it went off that I had to really read and better myself and try to understand um, where I had come in life and, and, and where I was. Malcolm had another great quote uh, that said, the penitentiary has been the university for many a black man. Um, so I began taking college courses. At that time, KU, University of Kansas, had an amazing program where professors would come in every night. You would sign up. That's when you were in federal prison. You've been convicted. You're doing time now. I'm doing federal time. You had a 12-year sentence. A 12-year sentence. Right. And professors would come in. And the dedication of these, and it, it planted the seed for me to want to be an educator because the dedication of these professors who were coming in were really quite amazing. And one of the professors I like to tell, talk about is Professor Johnson, who was this petite woman, English professor, in her late 60s, uh, who stood about five, three, uh, five foot three, who was like the toughest person in the joint, seriously. She would come, and if you did an English paper and it wasn't right, she would mark it up, and she'd hand it back. And look, guys are there doing 25 years, 50 years life, bank robbery, kidnapping, and she'd hand the paper back. I know you can do better than this, Mark. <laughs> and you see this big, tough convict with Professor Johnson. I tried. Try it. It's not enough. And one day she brought in the Bible. She brought in the Holy Bible and had redlined it with grammatical errors. She said, <laughs> look at what I found. I don't care what you're convicted of. We were sitting in the back of the classroom like, yo, man, she's redlining Jesus, man. She's no joke. <laughs> there was one, one guy in our class, man, Big Bo. I mean, he was, do he was doing like a double life sentence, could knock you out with one punch. You know, baddest guy in the joint. And Big Bo standing in the yard like looking really down. And we dared to approach him. Bo, you all right? I'm all right, man. Bo, uh, uh, everything all right? Man, you get some bad news from home? We knew his mother was struggling. She had cancer. Nah, man, you know, mom's all right, man. Uh, we knew he was going to the parole board. Big Bo, something bad happened to the parole board? They hit you with another 10 years? Nah, man, you know, I ain't see the board yet. What's the matter, Bo? Oh, man, uh, I'm going to tell you, right? Um, Professor Johnson, man, she gave me a C. That's going to mess up my whole GPA, <laughs> man. <laughs> so it was kind of wonderful in a couple of ways of seeing that dedication, of seeing when you come with love, right, and you come with high expectation that you can walk without fear which is how our professors came in, and we loved them. And we weren't great. They weren't safe because the guards weren't going to let anything happen to them. We weren't going to let anything happen to us. They recognized excellence or the potential within us. And the second thing that happened is Mr. Cody, the same guy, came to me, and he found out that I had done some theater. I had been part of the black arts movement and done some poetry and done some theater. And he came to me. He was like, yo, young blood, do something for Black History Month, and just kind of walked away. And the way he said it, I knew... This, like, wasn't a request. I needed <laughs> you had to do, to do this. this. I had to do this. So I went to the, the library. There was no black plays in the library. I wrote a play. And now prison is, it, it is highly segregated. Men segregate themselves. Black prisoners stay in one section, Latino, white prisoners. And there's tough gangs associated with each section, the black guerrilla family, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Mexican Mafia. So, and they never, you know, unless it's some business in a neutral area like gambling or drugs, people never sit together. They never socialize. So I'm in doing, um, uh, trying to teach two of my actors, uh, you know, how to act. And it was very funny. I'm teaching through improv. So I go, freeze, guys. That was good. You know, 
Big death, big black. That was great, man. You guys were talking about, you said you're going to stab him. You said you're going to, like, crush his. That was good. That was a good improv, you know, and that was dialogue. That was good. You guys just did dialogue. Say that with me. And big black, well, I wasn't dialoguing. I don't like him. I'm going to kill him. No, stop, guys. All right. (laughs) Work with me. Breathe. You're a tree. Come on. Let's relax. Put your arms up. Breathe. And at that very moment, the two guys from La Eme, the Mexican mafia, the leaders, these guys had gotten more life sentences on top of life sentences because they'd killed three or four guys since they'd been in the joint. They come in and they're diesel from the way pile, tattoos, and they're watching like they're really upset. Now, all of us are trying to play it cool, right, because you can't show fear, but all of us have the same thought. They have left their court, their section of the, of the prison. Who are they here to kill? And after about 10 minutes, the leader, Rafael, looks at me, Tito, looks over at me, and he was like, yo, essay, let me speak to you a minute. And I went, damn, it's me. <laughs> See, I knew doing theater was like violated the convict code. I knew this could be, okay, just be man-to-man, Jamal. Just look him in the eye. You know, don't show any fear. And he pulls me to the side, and he was like, "Essay, man, there's been rumors about you in the joint. And I had to come here and see for myself. And I've been sitting here for about 10 minutes, and I'm going to tell you something, Essay. That guy you're working with, Essay, that effing guy, your homes, he's not feeling his character. <laughs> True story. So he gets involved. Then some of the white guys come to see what the blacks and Mexicans are doing. Leonard they Peltier. get involved. Huh? And Leonard Peltier. And Leonard Peltier. The great Leonard Peltier comes. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Native American freedom fighter, Leonard Peltier. And we form a multicultural uh, uh, group within the prison. We have our own courtyard. And that became life-changing because I started to see the power of the creative arts for for, bringing, for the, the ability to, to bring people together and to transform lives through people telling their stories. So I think it's important to hear the, 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 one of the things you talk about in this book a lot is the power of what it means to be a revolutionary, whether it was being a panther and a revolutionary, uh, studying Marx, studying Fanon, studying all the great revolutionary leaders, learning how to fire a gun. But then things changed. And as you did your time in prison, and went through college in prison. And by that when you were arrested, just put it real shortly, when you were arrested, you were already married, had this lovely wife, had a kid, and they broke down your door and took you away, put you in prison. That when you came out, there was something that happened to you where you never stopped calling yourself a revolutionary, but there's something transformative about the way you, the way you, the way you approach what it means to be a revolutionary. Uh, just talk a bit about that. I want, that's another piece of the sense. So we can't, we have, we can't get to the detailed book, unfortunately, which we could at least Absolutely. Let's get to this point. Well, I, you know, I started working um, uh, at a, at a, at a uh, small college as a counselor, recruitment counselor, and then the director of student activities. And I was um, uh, uh, doing some theater um, and working with some young people. But the thing that really happened that transformed me was that a young man who grew up uh, in our building, named Andre, a uh, good kid, um, uh, went out to a party one night and got hit by a stray bullet. And when I came back that night, when I came home, uh, his, his mom was in the street crying. She got the news late at night, but she couldn't stay inside. The apartment was too small to contain her grief. And my wife and the other women from our building and the women in the community were consoling her and crying. This was a good kid who was 14 years old. And we men in the community were standing a few feet away watching the women cry. 
And at that very moment, this was in the late 90s in Harlem, I looked and, and I had an almost out-of-body experience where I said, this is Harlem, 1997. This could very well be Mississippi, 1857. Or this could be South Africa, 1947, where the men are watching the women cry over the death of another child. I have got to do something right here where I live in Harlem. And my wife and I uh, came together with another friend, uh, Voza Rivers, who produced Serafino on Broadway. And with just a few dollars that we scraped together, we started a program. Oh, the context is that there's a crack epidemic. Giuliani is the mayor, and he's throwing lots of money at the police and stripping away money from community centers, after-school programs, arts programs don't exist. Everywhere in America. Everywhere. It's cut down. And, uh, and, And I knew from prison what art could do to save lives. And we started with no money, no resources. In fact, my wife reminded me that even though we had money, she reminded me about how the Panthers started the breakfast program by knocking on doors and asking for food, by knocking on other doors and asking churches and community centers, could we use the kitchen, by mimeographing some flyers and putting them up and, you know, getting kids to come out to feed them. And we started Impact Repertory Theater, uh, which has a, a model of combining creative arts with leadership training in an environment where kids are empowered because they're telling their stories through music, dance, and drama, and then going out to the community, to schools, to community centers, to theaters to perform. So I think, let me just double check something here. I think they want us to clear out of here in two minutes. Am I right about that? I don't see anybody saying we have to go out just yet. So let's, let's, let's wrap it up here. We'll okay. Because so, um, you'll be signing books downstairs, right? Uh, what happens yeah. next? Yes. Sounds right. Correct. Downstairs? Downstairs. Okay. Signing books? Okay. And more questions. I guess questions that we can't answer. We, we, we maybe we'll take one or two quick questions until yeah. it's time to go. Absolutely. I'm but if you want a question, sure. let's do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. If you want to ask questions, we don't have time for two of them. Come up here. Come up here. I'll hold on to the mic, and you ask your question, and then we'll um, – and, and then he'll answer. My, hold the mic. I, my favorite crux question – uh, MLK versus Malcolm X, France Fanon versus Howard Zinn, nonviolence, violence. I think about it all the time. I juggle those two balls. What's your deepest thinking? You are a man of wisdom. I my my deepest thinking is a quote from Bobby Seale, just to keep the answer short. Bobby Seale said that when the Panthers started in 66, they carried shotguns and law books because those were the dynamic weapons of social change. If the Panthers were started today, he and Huey would still have Panthers out on the street, patrolling the street, doing community programs, doing all of that work, but that Panthers would be carrying video cameras and laptop computers because these are the dynamic weapons of social change. So, well, we have time for one quick question? Sir? I'll hold the mic and just see what you got to say. Listen, I was uh, in Chicago. I was born back in 1958, so you can tell, you can pretty much get an idea of what was going on in Chicago. Absolutely. When, uh, well, my, let me get to my question. I uh, understand, I, I got by hearsay that uh, the gangs that were in Chicago, they were the Black Peace Stone Nation. Exactly. And the Disciples, the Gangster Disciples. The Gangster Disciples, the Peace Stone Nation, and the Young Lords. Right, uh, the Vice Lords over on the West Yeah, side. they were the Vice Lords who became the Young Lords because of Fred Hampton. Right, right. See, I was, 
yeah. goes knee high to a chicken. So right. everything that I heard was pretty much hearsay. Yeah. All right, and I I do like natural actual fact. Sure. Um, I understand that it was supposed to be a meeting that was supposed to go on in Soldiers Field that you guys were trying to get bring these brothers together exactly. and, and inform them on exactly. uh, accurate knowledge. Um, can you give me uh, some sort of idea of how they broke that down? What happened? Sure. And this is exactly why Fred Hampton was killed, by the way, because he was having great success. Fred Hampton was an amazing speaker. Please Google Fred Hampton. You see some of his speeches. He had that combination of the black church style along with that revolutionary style. And he was a very effective communicator, uh, even more effective on the ground organizer. He was 21 years old when he was killed. He was 18 when he joined the Panthers and had been a field organizer for the NAACP. And he was very effectively getting gang members to put their guns down, to stop shooting each other, and to become revolutionary forces within their communities, to do community programs. The most successful example was the Vice Lords that became the Young Lords, uh, that produced people like Felipe Luciano and Pablo Guzman and, you know, all of these great leaders in the, in the Puerto Rican community. And the same thing was happening uh, with the Disciples and with the Peacestone Nation. And Chicago said, listen, how's this going to work? We have 35, maybe 40,000 police officers. There's 150,000 gang members. If they all become political, like the Panthers want, we've lost this city. And that's why Fred Hampton was, was assassinated. Well, I want to say, I want to thank you, I think, it, uh, for coming out today. This has been amazing. Jamal Joseph, the book Panther Baby. Thank you. Life of Rebellion and Reinvention. And um, I think he's signing books downstairs. Is that right? Yes. And, and listen, Judy, I have to acknowledge, because it's so great, because I mentioned that Mark was one of Tupac's teachers. Judy told me an amazing story that Tupac, uh, who spent his great formative creative years here in Baltimore, entered a poetry contest here at this library and won. And somewhere in the archives is that poem. So Judy in the library, a round of applause. Wait till I telephone you this. That's that both for you.